Welcome and thank you for joining me for season two of Just Black Talking. I am your host, Dr. Justin Black, proud alumnus of Morgan State University, the national treasure represent anesthesiologist by profession, podcaster by this passion. Look, I push dope for a living. And with you, I'm here talking about living dope with dope ass people. As always, I'm here to magnify the successes and stories of exceptional black America as seen through my lenses. What does that mean? Look, I don't know about you, but I'm surrounded by dope blackness. So much so, I'm guilty of it. I take it for granted. Seemingly ordinary folk actually living their exceptional versions of the black American dream. Yet we're saturated with this narrow-minded, unproductive, purposefully negative depiction of what society has defined and perceived as being black. Well, enough of society defining blackness. We're here to shift perceptions, define definitively what blackness in America is. It's time to blackwash that old dusty ass narrative and refresh it. You might not understand it, but it's going to be something about it that you like. Because it's looking good, it's smelling good, like cocoa butter around lunchtime. You know what I'm saying? Like Missy said, we're going to flip it and reverse it. Black is infinite. It encompasses all things. We're the originators, trendsetters, overcomers, resilient, literally forged in fire. We are the original people. Black America, this is our soapbox. I want to showcase your greatness, share your stories, give you your shine, and help empower others to live in their authenticity. Our people need to understand that there are all these extraordinary people that look like them everywhere doing all these exceptional things, and they can do it too. We want people of all nationalities, ethnicities, cultures, and identifications to be encouraged. So I invite you to stay and listen and care to hear what your fellow Americans are up to. Don't get me wrong, maybe a little funny acting at first until we know that you're down, but that's systemic. Just come on board with this experience with us as we tell the untold tales and share the unspoken stories and successes of exceptional black America. All right. So before we get started, here's the house rules. We got five of them. Number one, take your shoes off at the door. Wife gonna get upset. Number two, if this is your first visit, I will serve you. But after that, you're on your own. Number three, bring drinks. And yeah, you can bring drinks for me too. However, if your drink is glowing in the dark or filled with sugar, go and keep that for yourself. Number four, white folks, please inquire, but refrain from interrogating. I know, Karen, I know. You want it to be one way, but it's the other way. Number five, learn something you didn't know you wanted to learn about and be entertained. It is okay to laugh. Look, I think that covers it. I am Dr. Justin Black. This is Just Black Talking. Let's go. The impact that we make in our lives that really resonates is the impact that's left after we're gone. It's not the money that we're able to, uh, to make or the athletic or achievements in entertainment or anything like that. It's the resources that we're able to bring back to our communities. It's how we're raising our children. Hello and welcome once again to Just Black Talk, and I am your host, Dr. Justin Black. Today, we have a spectacular and amazing guest. It's difficult that you find someone who excels in so many different talents in life, but that's exactly what we have today. It would be, I think, clumsy of me to try to do an actual introduction of this gentleman, so I'm going to invite him, like I do so many, to introduce himself. But what I will say is that if you uh, are familiar with Mr. Aaron Mabin, or you search for his name, the first thing that you may come across is his past career as a uh, first round draft pick in the NFL. And I just really believe that that's probably the least interesting thing about this man. Aaron, I hope you can hear me well. Welcome to Just Black Talking. Thank you for having me, my brother. So, Aaron, as I said, I don't want to introduce you. I want you to introduce yourself as you see fit as you are comfortable and as you see yourself in this in this current version of yourself. Again, thank you, Brother Justin, for having me. I'm very honored to be here sharing uh, sharing this platform with you. I definitely am a big fan of, of all of the things that you're doing in this space, and I'm happy that I myself would be able to sit down with you for a few minutes this morning. But as you initially introduced me, uh, my name is Aaron Maven. A lot of people May have heard of me through um, my career as an athlete. You know, I was drafted in the first round of the 2009 NFL draft by the Buffalo Bills, 
played a few years there, then played a couple years for the New York Jets, finished off with the Cincinnati Bengals before deciding to retire and to do the work that I'm doing now. And that work consists of being an artist, being an educator, being a community organizer, being an author, being an educator and a developer of educational programming and curricula here in the city of Baltimore that is meant to engage our youth around the idea of art therapy and social justice and using our artistic tools as weapons of activism that we wield uh, to try to, to create some of the sustainable futures for ourselves that many of our ancestors have spent generations fighting for. So I'm definitely not somebody that tries to put myself up on anybody's pedestal. I see myself as a brother that's just trying to use the platform that I've created for myself to bring much needed resources and much needed uh, uh, healing to our community. I hate to uh, feel like I'm I'm blowing past a chapter in your life, especially a chapter that that reached the pinnacle of playing uh, you know professional sports. But I think that as capable and impactful as you were as a football player, even more so in the space that you're in now. And so I really want to hurry past that very. <laughs> I think me and you are on the same page. I tell people uh, usually most times when I have conversations with folks. Football is not mentioned until they find a way to mention it. I'm absolutely uh, not saying that, you know, I'm not proud of, of many of the accomplishments that I've been able to achieve athletically. But as I say all the time, if I were to die right now and the best thing that somebody could say about me was that I was a damn good football player, then that means that I wasted a lot of time in my life. I think that as you echoed a little bit earlier, the the work that I'm doing now actually matters beyond this idea of playing a kid's game and, and, and receiving a lot of compensation for it. The impact that we make in our lives that really resonates is the impact that's left after we're gone. It's not the money that we're able to, uh, to make or the athletic or achievements and entertainment or anything like that. It's the resources that we're able to bring back to our communities. It's how we're raising our children. It's how we're having an impact on creating the type of society going forward that we want our kids to be able to inherit from us. That really is where 100% of my focus is every day of the week now. While I'm grateful for what football has done in my life and what I have been able to achieve through that game and, and, and hard work and, and dedication, being able to retire my parents and being able to help to put my, you know, siblings through college and all that kind of stuff is, is, is huge, you know, and I definitely would never want to minimize that, but that's definitely not what I see my impact on my city, the world, or my legacy when all is said and done. That legacy and that impact, I think, is, you know, we're going to talk about that at length. But let, let's go a little bit just through that transition period, because I imagine and, and you've spoken on that in some other speaking engagements, the difficult decision to kind of leave that world behind voluntarily, which in m most of our communities, that would be seen as the pinnacle. I mean, you, you, you've reached hero status once you're, you know, an NFL player. But the ability and, and the decision that you made to walk away from that, how big a role did it play that you had deep down something else about yourself, that you had this artistic expression? How did that play into the ease or difficulty of, of making that decision to walk away? It was a pivotal influence on that decision. I think what separates me from a lot of guys that I either played with or that played this game at some point before me. And what's not unique about my story is most NFL players spend a few years or so going through the wilderness, so to speak, when they when they get done playing, trying to figure out what their new place is in the world. A lot of them have had their identities tied directly to a sport since they were in grade school. And in that lane, I'm, I'm no different. You know, um, I was somebody that from the time that I started playing um, sports, you know, when I was five, six years old, I was always dominant, you know, and there were always people that were looking at me saying athletically he has a future. But my parents were were well-rounded enough to understand that that was just one of the talents that I had, you know, and I was blessed to grow up in a family that invested 
and all of the talents that I had. So, yes, they had me on the football team and the baseball team and the basketball team and the wrestling team and all of that stuff. But they also had me going to uh, art classes and doing dance classes and learning how to play instruments and singing on the church choir and singing for the Peabody Institute and acting in school plays. And you know what I mean? So uh, I was always a very well-rounded and artistically centered kid I tell people all the time I was creating art before I could form words and speak. And as somebody who lost my mother at a very young age and was dealing with depression and anxiety and all of these things at a very young age, art became my coping mechanism and my first introduction to therapy, mental health and and, and emotional wellness. And it became my first exposure to what balance would look like in my life. You know, balance a lot of the chaotic experiences of just growing up as a young black kid in Baltimore by creating, you know, I would, uh, I would express some of the things that I was struggling with, not through my voice, but through my art. And as I got older, that continued to develop. And I was blessed to have, you know, mentors like Larry Poncho Brown and Charles Bibbs and Karen Buster and so many others that poured into me as a village from a young age and helped to cultivate and develop my talents as an artist So by the time I get to college, you know, I'm majoring in art. I've already studied at Maryland Institute College of Art, you know what I mean, on scholarship since I was in, you know, middle school. I've won countless art competitions. I've performed, you know what I mean, at places all over the country. So, you know, I'm majoring in art at the time and I'm learning for the first time about some of the historical and social influences that have really shaped my experience as a black man in America. And I'm doing all of this at a PWI, one of the largest academic institutions in the country. But it exposed so much to me about my existence, about my history and about how all of that kind of stuff is tied together. I saw my artwork as a vehicle to address, discuss and unpack a lot of that. Similar to what, you know, I use my athletic platforms for. I always use my art as a catalyst to address things that I was passionate about in society. You know, that's not something that is new over the past five, six, seven years. My work has always had that kind of social undertone to it. So that time period for me in deciding to transition away from the game that I had known and loved my entire life to doing this new profession that, to be quite frank and and honest, most people thought I was crazy during that time. Well, you're walking say, away from this, you know, celebrity absolutely. and, you know, you're walking away from guaranteed money. Mm-hmm. You're walking from a lifestyle. You're walking away from security. And when you go as the oldest of, of four children and tell your parents that they can retire and that you're going to build them their dream house and that, you know, you got everything from here on out and you're going to find a way to, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to make sure that as the new head of this family that we are stable and we are moving forward in terms of being able to build uh, generational wealth for the first time in the history of our family here in this country, you know? Um, and then that same son comes to you a couple years later. Oh yeah. That thing that we use to build all of this. Yeah. I'm not going to do that anymore. There's so much to that. What I'm hearing is your family structure, your parents, your support, they cultivated and they empowered you from an early age by not only exposing, but supporting and encouraging you to, as you said, explore all of your many talents instead of, you know, pipelining you down one way. That That's a theme here. Now, as you you finished playing and you start into this new space, walk us through a little bit about what that started to look like in your first endeavors. And, you know, you're engaged in the school system and talk about you having been empowered and seeing the power of what that did for you and how you are carrying that forward to the youngsters that you've been working with over the years? Where I was blessed and where where my story kind of differs from a lot of guys is when a lot of guys go through that transition period after the NFL, most of them haven't spent a lot of time thinking about and planning for what that transition looks like. Mm -hmm. The difference between me and a lot of those guys was that plan for me was already in place. Just for me, I believe that that plan would take place after playing for about 10 years, you know, winning a couple Pro Bowls, right. maybe a Super Bowl in there somewhere. But the plan for me, and and that's the thing, even from 
from grade school. When I was five, six years old, I would go around telling people I'm going to play in the NFL and then I'm going to be a famous artist. You know what I mean? Like that was the plot, the trajectory in my mind and the primary reason for me majoring in art in college and the subjects that I studied. When I was drafted in 2009, one of the first things I did before I you know, bought anything, before I did anything was I started my foundation. The first thing that we did was start doing school programming around the arts, because the year before I had I had uh, gotten drafted, the city of Baltimore, well, the state really had a massive budget cut that ended up impacting our schools drastically to the level of most of our public schools in the city of Baltimore had to remove their arts and music programs completely and kind of gutted the created sector in our public school system. I was so young, dumb, and naive that I believed at at 20 years old with a pocket full of money in my mind that I was going to be able to change all that. Yeah. You can fix the school system. Yeah. I was that kid. I thought (laughs) fresh out of college, I'm coming back home. You know, I'm putting my cape on and I'm saving the city about. That's that's an interesting thing as well, because uh, not that everybody does, but a a good amount of a lot of athletes do. And nobody really spends time. People talk a lot about how athletes go broke and they talk about, you know, all of the money that they spend on frivolous BS. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. a lot of the times they don't talk about how much money we pour into our communities. But it's the organization uh, of how to do that that makes the impact. And I think you were you were fortunate to have some vision, some guidance and, and, and some real passion about this so that when you did funnel your energies into this community, it landed. OK, it wasn't a swing and a miss. So, you know, what I mean, I didn't want to have a yearly one day camp where we gave away some stuff and then felt good about ourselves because we I didn't want, you know, to just have a turkey giveaway every Thanksgiving or, you know, give away presents on Christmas just to feel good about myself. Like I grew up in this community. And you never left that community. You never you never got so big that you stopped coming back to this community. The fact that I always lived in the hood and never really separated myself like a lot of guys do. You know, I never ran out to the suburbs. I never lived in the cities that I played in during the off season. you know, so. But I was never a guy that got in, that got into any trouble. You know, I was never a guy that was a character flaw. I mean, that was a character risk or any of that kind of stuff. But still, every team that I played for, at some point or another, we would have there that would be conversation. Some problem. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Especially how young I was when I came into the league. I was drafted at 20. Okay. I wasn't 21 yet. When you're that young and you come into a position and you're as unapologetically black as I am and was during that time, it rubs people the wrong way. They feel like they have to, you know, to send you a message early so that you kind of fall in line with how guys have done it before. How did you balance that? Because it sounds like what's happening is you're in a, you're in a world, you're in a space that's asking you to be something other than you so that you can appeal to all sides of the coin. My first three years, it was rough because in Buffalo, they were not having it. They wanted to to send a message early. They wanted to to show me that my career wasn't necessarily just in my hands. You know, if I wasn't allowed to perform on the field, then that would reflect on me. You know what I mean? Like uh, uh, throughout. The- and so two and a half years in with Buffalo, I was unsure about whether or not I even still wanted to play the game anymore. Because I was so fed up with that fight, you know, and this is before Colin Kaepernick. This is before this time of of the NFL starting to embrace social justice and all of this stuff. You know, guys like us that were talking about it back then, it was able to be a problem. And and, uh, and they held the keys over you, your future. And, and yeah, how do you know, you know what I mean? Because you're not going to be the guy as the 20, 21 year old kid going out there doing interviews about how you're being made an example of because you refuse to dance to somebody else's tune, mm-hmm. but they can write all of the the pieces they want about you ripping you up, talking about you being a character guy, you're not working hard, you're not doing all of these things. It really wasn't until I got to New York playing with Rex Ryan where he actually gave me the freedom to do my thing. He's known me for a long time since. Me and his kids went to school together. So they had been fans of mine as an athlete before I was even in college. 
we had a longstanding relationship and he understood me. And he pretty much said once he signed me, long as you can get to the quarterback, that's all I care about. I'm not going to stifle you. Yeah. 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 I you to be yourself. I want you to do all of these amazing things. We're going to have our media de- uh, department work with you to help you to amplify some of this stuff. So those were actually some of the first art exhibits that I did in New York City, which is the art epicenter of the world. Some of my first exposure um, to the corporate side of that of that coin. But also during that time, this social media app called Instagram came up and started to blow up. During that time, I happened to be uh, happened to be playing very well, you know, leading the team in sacks as a new guy on the squad. So our media team was really heavy on me about starting this like social media page. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I already got a Facebook and I got a Twitter. Like, what what the hell do I need another? You know what I mean? I'm not a social media. You can tell you you can tell looking at my social media. Oh now, yeah, no, you you don't engage. You're not out tweeting every every 20 minutes. Yeah, I'm not there for the BS. I'm there to uplift, inspire, motivate, and organize and spread the message of the work that's being done. When they told me about this new app and how everybody was using it and saying that, like, yo, our fan base would really love to engage with you on there. Like, we think you'd be a great follow. I'm sitting there like, look, I'm a private person. What pictures do you think I'm fitting to be sharing? They thought you'd be a great follow in the capacity that they wanted you to be. And, you know, it really, not to make it a referendum on on big corporate structures, but the tale of those two cities, the way you were handled and treated and addressed in Buffalo versus with the Jets, it shows the power of of the entity that they can either build it up or tear it down. Or destroy you. And what I figured out was, all right, y'all have y'all intentions for why you want me to create this this profile or whatever. But once I looked at it and kind of studied it and recognized what the gist of it was, like why people were engaging on this app so much, I realized that there was an opportunity there, but I didn't see it through the lens that they saw it. I'm like, okay, they want me posting like workout videos and original stuff and stuff of me going to their little foundations and all that kind of like, but what can I, utilize this platform for outside of the game like what how does this serve me because at some point anything and it happened there too you know even though my time in new york was 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 amazing but at the point that that team was finished with me it let me go my thing was don't do this for any of these teams or these organizations that will lose your number as soon as you're no longer a part of their their bottom line but figure out where the marketplace is here for you, what the opportunity is for you to actually build something. So I said, okay, if they want me on this app, I'll get on, but the posts that I'm going to be making are not going to be the posts that they expect me to make. You're not going to see me out in the club all the time. You're not going to see me, you know, out here flaunting money in people's faces and doing all, nah, you're going to see me being a father to my kids. You're going to see me in the community serving people. You're going to see me doing my artwork. You're going to see me building an art business and empire for myself outside of the system of galleries and museums. Like, because at that point, you know, as a former art college student, as an artist that was doing great work, even back then, I was going around to like, you know, these museums and these galleries and all of this stuff. Like, you know, hey. Name's Aaron Maven, NFL player. You know, I'm an artist also. I do this. I do that. I've sold art for $10,000, $12,000, $13,000. All of these people would just look at me like a blank check. And they would say, yeah, we'll do something with you. But yeah, we need you to rent out our space for $20,000. We need you to do this. We need you to do that. And I was like, this doesn't serve. Like, they're looking at me like a cash cow. They don't respect. They don't respect me as an artist. They look at me as an athlete who's trying to come into this space. And they're basically expecting me to pay dues that I've already paid. The fact that they not even that they don't even care enough to research me. You know, it's just another dummy coming. We're going to tax them tuition and then, uh, you know, yeah, let them let them disappear. So rather than continue to beg for a seat at somebody else's table, what I decided to do was use the platform that I was building for myself on social media. And as an athlete, to start buying out my own venues 
and putting on my own shows. And we do that here in Baltimore, did that for a few years. And before you know it, the year that I transitioned out of the game for the first time, I'm able to go down to Miami and have a showcase during Art Basel, which is like the Super Bowl of the art world. So for the next three years, and during in Baltimore, I was building a company of young, hungry artists, which is amazing to look back on now because I look at what we were able to do back then, similar to like, you know, what Rockefeller was able to do musically, you know, back in the day, because we were tired of having doors closed in our faces. So like I said, we, we decided to buy out the club, to buy out the spot. And now the liquor money, the ticket money, all of that kind of stuff, that's all money in. And now we can chop that up amongst us. You know what I mean? How we saw. But what happened was we were building a vibe in our city and our community around creativity that wasn't there before. A lot of my elders and predecessors were still trying to break into the gallery and the, the museum industry, not realizing that we're the currency. It's another commentary on, on empowerment. You guys, once again, didn't didn't accept the seat at somebody else's table. We wanted to build our own table. Yeah, yeah. It, we built became so popular that the same museums and organizations that were trying to bust me over the head for a rental fee now have to pay me to walk into their doors to do anything. That must feel terrific to know you did it on your terms. I, I want to get into some of the work that you're doing, again, in the community it's difficult when you have so many different aspects to talk about because we can go from art, we can go, you know, from activism, we can do it all. But before we leave that part of the narrative about the power and the influence that the the league and these teams and organizations have, I, I want to bring up something that struck me. I was going through, you know, looking things up with you about you and I was in the comments, which is always a dangerous place to be. But uh, they were commenting and you've never been a character issue. You've never had a character problem. You've never been arrested. You've never been in trouble. But for some reason, one of these uh, uh, football related sites said, oh, he's a character issue. Mm -hmm. You go down just a few more comments and, and the, the best comment in the world was there. It says, that's my library teacher. Mm hmm. And right there, it's like it's the juxtaposition of, of you know, propaganda and and truth right. and truth. Right. So, OK, a character issue, huh? Meanwhile, there's there's the excitement of a kid. And that's one of the reasons why I never even really go back and forth and never have with those people, because if there was evidence of that. Oh, it'd be everywhere. <laughs> you know, it'd be everywhere. Let's talk a little bit about that space that you worked in, in the school system and the impact that you had. And the impact was tangible. You mentioned earlier that uh, it was around about that time that the state of Maryland had so many budget cuts that directly affected these kids. Out of some of those hardships, you, you established and, and, and engaged with Operation Heat. Tell us a little bit about what that's like to be in your in your community with kids, kids that you know, that you that you touch, that you you see them, you know their family story, you know everything about these kids and to see them suffering something that I think if you told somebody walking down the street, they'd, they'd say it's not true. It's not possible. If we told them a lot of what our kids are dealing with, people wouldn't believe it. But my biggest problem is whenever you hear my city discussed, most of the time when people are talking about it, all you hear them talking about, they use Society uses our schools and our kids like their punching bag. We want to act like the world is on fire and they're the ones running around with the with with the matches. But at the end of the day, for us to act like that, we have to acknowledge first who raised them, whose responsibility it was to make sure that they had certain opportunities that they did not have, and who was responsible for actually going back once the damage was done and finding some way of finding these lost children that we say are all over our community. You know what I mean? It's a deficit-based mindset and discussion that I came into after college and realized like, all right, I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm not going to be one of these guys that's talking about what everybody is doing wrong and not say, all right, well, how do I bear responsibility in that as well? I'm not going to go around talking about a problem not actually spend more time than I spend talking about the problem, helping to figure out a solution. 
You've outlined some of these from politics to legislation to religion in books that you've written. It's a solution based. I don't want to even call it a passion project. This is clearly your lifestyle. This is your life. Absolutely. You know, some of the books are educational resources. During my time as an educator, I developed a, a art activism curriculum around my workbook that I published in 2017. That book and that curriculum is being taught in 25 schools here in Baltimore City and about another 20 schools across the country. The first book that I published, Art Activism, is being taught as a Master's of Fine Arts course at Maryland Institute College of the Art at Arizona State. I know they're doing some stuff with it at Georgetown and a couple schools in the South that are escaping me. So right hold now. on, but, hold on, Aaron, because you you getting the, the Humble Henry Award here. Let's talk about it. So you developed a curriculum that's being yeah. taught <laughs> in school districts throughout the country. Let's focus on that. <laughs> like I said, you could get the Humble Henry Award on this, but how do you define, uh, to someone who's, who's not familiar, how do you define art activism? Art activism is using art as a tool to educate, inspire, and direct changes that we want to see go on in our community. And it's not new. The artists that I looked up to growing up, you know, artists like Emery Douglas, who was the creator of all of the, the artwork that was used by the Black Panther Party at the time. He was the editor of their newspaper. He was an art activist. Dick Gregory and Amiri Baraka and James Baldwin, all of these people, they were art activists, right? But when I was in school and I was studying, I was an integrative arts major in college. And one of the reasons why I chose that, that uh, major was because it allowed you as the student to craft your own major, basically. So I was able to take my African-American studies courses and my sociology courses and my religion courses and your history courses and all of that and combine them with all of the art courses that I was studying at the time. But you have to write basically a whole like thesis and dissertation for like why you want to do things the way that you want to do it. My whole concept for putting all of these things together was in the history of black people in America, art has always been the language by which we articulate our lived experiences here from slavery to contemporary. When you listen to the Negro spirituals that were sang out in the fields and in the black Pentecostal churches and understanding how even in our churches, uh, they were the birthplace of revolutionary thought until the federal government decided to come in and say, we're going to throw a wrench in that. Once you know all of these things, the question becomes what you do with that knowledge, because any of the books that are written about the history of our community, when you look at the artwork and the photography that is put on display about us, a lot of the times it doesn't come from our community. It's from outsiders that are basically going on a safari and trying to figure out a narrative that they don't know, that they don't understand, that they don't have context for. So my thing is when we have that knowledge ourselves, we approach those stories with a lot more care. We approach that narrative with much more of the roots of where these behaviors and these realities come from. And once you understand that, the question becomes, how do you inspire something different? Because what art offers that no other form of communication really offers is it offers the space for you to build bridges between people of different experiences. If we put a painting up on the wall and me and you are both looking at it, we're two black men. So there are a lot of things that we probably share in terms of interest, in terms of history, in terms of all of those things. But if we look at the same piece of art, we're going to see two different things. We'll find out that in spite of the things that we have in common, there's probably a million miles between your world and mine. Talking about what we see, you've done coloring books. You've tapped right into the relevance of representation and the power of that for young, for young Black uh, children, uh, boys and girls alike. You've given the images in a beautiful way that they can look at and be proud of. And that's something that's something that is lacking. You go to these, you go to the galleries, you know, and it's, it's white art on white walls and you feel that you're missing, you're, you're missing in this world and you're right. not seeing this world. And so talk a little bit about the coloring books. What prompted you to say, I need to do this. There's a, there's a need for this. So when I first started teaching, one of the ways that I would connect with my kids 
that I would really start to get them out of that hard shell, that exterior that we all try to put on as younger folks in, in, in communities like ours. I would draw images of them, draw a sketch of one of my kids during the school day that, you know, exhibited good behavior or, you know, gave an answer that really knocked my socks off. Like, so I started doing little sketches of my students occasionally. And every time I would do one, the whole class would go crazy. But for the first time, I would see them, instead of busting jokes on each other, tearing each other down, I would see them uplifting each other. I would see, you know, the girls telling each other how beautiful they were. You know, I would see the boys telling each other how clean they shape up look and how fly, you know, their outfit look. I realized like, yo, like this is the first time some of themselves, some of them have seen themselves reflected back at them as they are not dressed up and, and made up to be, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Not, yeah, with, not a glamour shot. Yeah. Not a glamour shot, but just as we are and that being enough. And then I started asking questions. I started when I saw how they reacted to it, I said, well, how many of y'all have seen like a book or a TV show or something like that, where the characters look like you, where like you found that, that representation and that, that home in that space, they would always say, we never seen anything like that. You don't really um, embellish your online presence, but online out there in, in the world of Instagram and all, it's a huge topic right now. You have things like uh, Disney's Encanto, right? And right. The, just to see that Latin representation. All necessary projects. All absolutely necessary and long overdue. We can have a talk about that, but the all necessary projects. But one of the things that I think that people pay too much attention to is we pay attention to Disney. Mm-hmm. I'm not expecting Disney to give me black content. If not you, then who? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Not Disney's job to create the projects that we should be creating. So when I created those coloring books, I knew that that didn't exist at the time. I knew that my students didn't have anything that I could buy for them that would reflect what I wanted them to see in themselves. So I created it the same way when I didn't see a school class that existed that gave the students the type of knowledge, understanding, and critical thinking skills that I think are necessary for them to be fully developed human beings now, rather than complaining about what the school system isn't doing, I created it. You know what I mean? So now, even though I can't personally go into every single school and teach my curriculum for them, I'm doing professional developments now with all of the art teachers in Baltimore City and with uh, all of the schools that have been declared stu student wholeness sites. I can't give you everything, but all of the tools that I've created, that we've gone into the, the jails and the juvenile centers and the, the schools and all of these other things and done art therapy classes and, you know, done a social emotional learning activities with and all of this kind of stuff. I can teach you how to use these tools to do the similar thing. You've been nothing but productive because you just released another book. <laughs> And I need you to explain it. Getting on code. Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. That's that's something that's out there now. People say that in, in, in different ways. But what do you mean by and tell us tell us what this is about. This is a brand new. This book just came out last month. Yeah. Getting on code is really uh, honestly, it's the book that I've written that I'm the most proud of so far, because man, I hope you'll understand what I mean when I say this. But I've been a man that's been put in the leadership position for a long time for a long time in my life. But even when you're, when people look to you as a leader, you don't always feel deserving of, of being put on that pedestal. You know what I mean? You don't always see in yourself what other folks see. And even when folks want to follow you, you're not always sure that you're capable of leading them in the right direction. And I'm somebody that like, I don't take stuff like that lightly. I don't want people following me if I don't know where I'm headed. If I'm still figuring something out, I don't want to be the person giving advice to certain folks on certain things. Um, so I say all that to say I've always been somebody that a lot of folks, you know, in my community, in my city, wherever, would come to and ask for my opinion or my advice on certain things, trying to get understanding of what they should do in their lives or what we should be doing as a community. And while I appreciate that they would come to me and want to know what I think about these type of things. 
you don't always feel confident that you're the person that needs to be giving them that advice. I finally got to a point in my life as a man, as a father, as an activist, as community organizer, educator, all of those things, where I am comfortable, where I am spiritually, mentally, emotionally. I finally gotten to a point where based on my own barometer, all of those things are aligned and it's brought a peace and a purpose to my life that I can't imagine having to have lived without for so long. This book is really, in many ways, my blueprint for how I live and how I operate. And it's really a challenge for our community to get on code with each other. And what I mean by getting on code, I feel like a lot of times when we have problems that we discuss in the Black community, it's not an in-house discussion. We have too many outsiders at the table I have no vested interest in, in what we're talking about. And, you know, I'll use Baltimore as an example. You can't be a black person in Baltimore and then go to Johns Hopkins or University of Maryland Medical Center, one of their events or one of the events that they're funding and expect black revolutionary thought to come from that because that's not what they're there for. A lot of times have conversations about creating sustainable solutions in our city, whether it be in the sectors of housing, education, economics, policing, politics, we're always going to predominantly white institutions and expecting them to bring the changes that we need to us when we're not even able to get on a baseline amongst ourselves of where we are, what we should be organizing towards, what our standards on certain things should be. And I think that at this point, it's to our detriment so much that it's preventing us from getting a lot of things accomplished that we need to get accomplished in order to become sustainable. If 20, 30, 40 years from now, we're not going to be sitting here having the exact same conversations we're having right now and that we've been having for decades, then we need to do something differently. We can't continue to do the same things the same way and expect different results. But that's exactly what we seem to do. So this book, is me laying out my thoughts, beliefs, and code of how I handle things in all of these different subjects. You know, we start off with cancel culture. And then, you know, we we have a running tally of, of, of all of the major issues that I think have provided uh, generational, social, and economic barriers to our people in cities like Baltimore across the country for generations. You know, so yes, we talk on cancel culture. We talk on the idea of us tough, toughening up as a people. We talk about the myth of toxic masculinity, black relationships, black women's empowerment, black men's empowerment, raising our kids, reforming our schools, rebuilding our community from the inside out, politics, reparations, the war on drugs, gentrification, Black Lives Matter solutions instead of just this idea of hashtags that we recirculate, coalition buildings, uh, intercommunal violence, gang culture, group economics. These are all issues that are pivotal issues for us as a community. But if we all can't get agreed on what needs to be done, or at least what the issues are and how we need to go about dealing with them, then when are they ever going to change? I think the other thing that we didn't speak specifically on, but it's come through and and you, you, you touched upon it with getting on code with toxic masculinity. I think presenting yourself as yourself of toxic masculinity, the myth of toxic masculinity. That's the thing. I think that toxic behavior is toxic behavior, but we've gotten to a point where we've just gendered toxic behavior to just something that black men deal with and not saying that, that we don't need to be held to account on certain things, but there's a two-way street there that we need to make sure that we don't erase. We can't say that Black women don't have any culpability in, in that same discussion. And to ignore that doesn't allow us all to do the important intrinsic work on ourselves that is necessary to, to bring us closer together. I think that true masculinity and true femininity is beautiful because Uh, True masculinity isn't predicated upon violence or isn't predicated upon misogyny. It's predicated upon honor and love and respect and decency and protection. And the more that we assign that toxic masculinity stamp, 
the more our young boys are going to grow up with an identity crisis. Because when everything, like, I, I, that's one of the things that I open up that essay with. There was a time that I was sitting with a group of my young boys and we were talking about masculinity. And for about 30 minutes, all I heard them say was every bad thing that's ever been said about a black man by their mothers, by their sisters, by television, by. And when all that you ever hear about yourself and those that look like you is negative, how do you begin to internalize those feelings towards yourself? So rather than focusing on a deficit based mindset, let's put the men on on a platform that we do consider to be real men. Let's talk about the men that are not just raising their kids, but raising everybody else's at the same time. Let's talk about the ones that are being faithful and loving to their partners. Let's talk about the ones that are doing things the right way. Same with our women. Taking down this fake veil of invincibility and revealing ourselves to be men with vulnerabilities sensitivities. Mm -hmm. I think that's just as powerful, particularly for children and young people as they're growing up to understand that you don't have to go through life numb to who you are inside, to the things that affect you, how they make you feel. And I think it's, it's powerful to see a a black man. You're an imposing physical presence, right? But Mm -hmm. you are caring and loving these people in this community. And Maybe again, like we said, one of the few or first times they've had that genuine, genuine, gentle care poured into them. And being able to do both is essential, right? That's why we have to be able to be comprehensive men and women, right? Because if I grow up as I did, right, learning that a man is a hammer, right? And that your only purpose in this world is as a blunt force trauma instrument then you only learn how to assert yourself in that way. That's the only tool that you learn how to carry in your your toolbox. But a real man is not a hammer. A real man, it has to be more than that because when all we carry around in our toolbox is a hammer, what happens when a hammer isn't what's needed? What happens when your lady or your kid or your student or somebody else needs you to be compassionate or empathetic or loving or tender or caring? You're just smashing everything around you up as a bunch of broken things that only learn how to break everything else around us because we never learned that a man, a real man is not a hammer. A real man is a Swiss army knife because in whatever situation that that man finds himself in, he needs to be able to become whatever he needs to become to solve the problem. So if I need to be able to become a socket wrench, I could become a socket wrench. If I need to become a pocket knife, I can become that. So if my daughter comes to me and she's not feeling validated and she needs to be loved and affirmed and all of those things, I have to be able to morph into that. When my son comes to me and he's had his heart broken in some way and he's dealing with the pain of that, I can't just turn tell him to turn that off. I have to teach him how to work through that emotion, you know what I mean, in a healthy way, you know what I'm saying, so he can be whole. We have to, we have to as their fathers, know that we have to be able to model that behavior for them. And it sounds great to be able to say that we can be comprehensive men in a conversation, but it hits a little bit different when you're you're face to face with another man who's clearly looking for a fight. And you got to find a way to address this in a way that is still productive, you know, and then you have to learn that there are some times where force or violence or all of that kind of stuff is necessary. Where do you draw that line? But when we don't have comprehensive men teaching us these things, when we have men that never learned how to control their emotions or never learned how to be fully comprehensive Swiss army knives themselves, we got a bunch of men with a hammer in their toolbox trying to teach us how to fully develop individuals. So, you know, it's got to be work that we all are willing to do. And we can't just say it's on our kids or it's on our elders or it's on our, it's a collective consciousness that we all need to be able to have as a people before ourselves as individuals. So, all right, Aaron, we gotta, we gotta find a way to wrap this up. I could talk with you for hours and hours, man. Tell me a couple of last things here. What's the grand plan? You've got curriculum going. Who are you partnering with, with that? So right now, uh, the curriculum is being taught in Baltimore city public schools, uh, we have a love-hate relationship with each other. You know, I I love them. They tend to some of the uh, light that I end up shining on the deficiencies within our program. But at the end of the day, I don't need to be liked. 
they know that these these things that we're doing are are resources that our kids need. And at the end of the day, regardless of the politics of it all, we're going to find a way to make sure that that we provide these resources. And while I was an educator, we were able to do it inside the schools. The schools that were teaching my um, curriculum are still teaching it. So I'm in more of a supervising capacity as far as that's concerned. Another former athlete for the Ravens, Tori Smith, and I have opened up a rec center on, uh, in West Baltimore together over this past year. We've gotten the Ravens and Under Armour to come on as major community partners and to fund expansion of the building over the next few years. So God willing, over the next few years, by the time we get done with this expansion, we'll be talking about opening up our own school. We'll basically have the size to be able to go off uh, uh, after our uh, K through five uh, accreditation. And that's a whole process in and of itself. But when you talk about solution-based mindsets and all that kind of stuff, like I said, we can only complain about the schools and politics and all of these things for so long before we're actually willing to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty. So what I tell people all the time is what you, if what you want doesn't exist, then create it or at least get with the people that are interested in creating it and start the process. But until we're actually able to create our own institutions that we control, that we run, that we organize and that we sustain, then we can't go complaining to the powers that be for what they're not giving us. Nobody's ever going to give us the tools to our own liberation. So we have to find ways from a community-based standpoint of, of building and organizing around these things with like-minded individuals. So humble, impactful, insightful, aspirational, a comprehensive Swiss army knife of a black man, Aaron Maben, you are a treasure, my brother, an absolute treasure. One of Baltimore's finest, truly indeed. Looking forward to so much of it. AaronMaben.com. That's where we can go. We can get access to the uh, the books that have been written. I think also you have a, a link there. We can get access to uh, artwork from you as well. Yes. If you go on my website, there's links to my books and all of those projects. But there's also a link to the store where you can get, you know, my paintings, prints, all different types of merch connected to my artwork and all that good stuff. I don't think I can end the episode. I think we're going to have to pause and resume the episode because there's just too much to keep talking about. We'll get back when it's time for the um, the rec center, the school and some of these other projects that you have that, that, that we weren't mentioning. We'll talk about some of those things again, man. I, I can't thank you enough for spending time with me and sharing about your journey, about your mission and about the future. You know, obviously, Baltimore City is near and dear to both of our hearts. We're just so fortunate to have you there agitating the school system, causing positive change and really helping to shape the future minds and uh, spirits and aspirations of our children. Man, Thank you very much. It's been an honor, my brother. Definitely look forward to doing it again in the future. Absolutely. So that's it for this episode. Just Black Talking. Instagram, justblacktalking.com. Go ahead and send me a message. Let me know what you think about these episodes. And also, if you have someone in mind that you believe is a change maker, shifting perceptions in our community or magnifying excellence in their own life, let me know. And we'll reach out to them and get them here on Just Black Talking. Thanks again for this episode. We'll see you next time.